encourage you to get a Bible and turn to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 29. We're going to begin our study there and use that as a launching board to some things based on the concept of verse 29. I hope you've got your Bible with you and eager to study with us. We're glad to have everyone present. We have visitors. We're glad that you've come and hope you can come back and be with us. Deuteronomy 29 and verse 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but those which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. You've heard that passage quoted many times, The secret things belong to the Lord. Let's put that in its context. The chapter 29, the 29th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, has to do with renewing the covenant. This is one of the speeches, or in the midst of one of the speeches, that Moses is making on the eve of crossing over the Jordan into the land of Canaan. Telling the people they should serve and obey the Lord. That's the point of the whole book, but particularly this chapter, that's the point. Let's look at verses 1 to 9. There's obedience based upon God's grace. Look at verse 1. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make the children of Israel, make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab besides the covenant that he made with them in Horeb. So this is the covenant of God. Look at verse 9. Therefore keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all that you may do. So the point is simply obedience based upon how good God's been to them. Beginning at verse 10, there's a call to enter into this covenant that God has given. Look at verse 12, that you may enter into the covenant with the Lord your God. Verse 14, I make this covenant an oath not with you alone. So here is a covenant that God has extended to them, and so here is the invitation and the call to enter into that covenant. Now more interested in this context, in verses 16 to 29, There is the warning concerning departure from this covenant. I've given you a law I expect you to obey. When you enter into the land, you're expected to obey. There's warning if you depart from it. In fact, he mentions in verses 16 to 18, you've witnessed the absurdity of idolatry. When you were in Egypt, you saw that. When you came out into the the wilderness, you've been seeing this, this absurdity of the idolatry. And so that ought to impress you. Look at verse 19. His whole goal in mentioning this in the sermon is that they would not turn away. And so that it may not happen when he hears the words of this curse, that he blesses himself in his heart saying, I have peace, even though I walk in the imagination of my heart. In other words, I don't want you to say that everything is well with you when you're turning and still serving after idolatry. Don't turn aside from this covenant. Now, beginning at verse 20, the Lord's wrath is stirred at any departure. When you depart from the Lord, the Lord will not spare him, for then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy would burn against that man. So when one turns away from the covenant, what's going to happen? God's wrath is going to be stirred. Now beginning at verse 22, this kind of information needs to be reported to the next generation. So that when someone departs and they suffer, you tell it to the next generation so they learn the lesson therein. So notice at verse 22, so that the coming of the generation of your children who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes after you, and I'm going to stop there because he goes on to say that you need to report that to them and here's what you're going to say to them. What are you going to say to them? You're going to tell them, verse 25, because they have forsaken the covenant of our God. This is why this happened to them. Why did this nation fall? Because they forsook the covenant of God. Why did that nation fall? Because of the covenant of God. Why did we go into captivity? Because they forsook the covenant of God. Tell it to the next generation. Now, now then, look at the conclusion at verse 29. He concludes that message at verse 29 saying, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong to us. For what purpose? Into our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So what's the point at verse 29? Well, Barnes said this. Barnes said this sense seems to be this. The future, when and how these good and evil things will take effect, 
It lies with the Lord our God to determine. It pertains not to man's fear and duty. God's revealed will is that which we must carry out. So God's going to deal with nations. And when someone departs, he's going to deal with them. And he's going to punish them, take them into captivity. When and how and when all that's going to take place, that's in God's realm. But God has revealed to you his will. That's what you need to be concerned with. Just do that. There's some things, though, God hasn't revealed to you. I like what Bratcher and Hatton said as a possible to alternative translation to verse 29. The Lord, our God, has not revealed certain things to us and to our descendants, but he has revealed his law to us, and we and our descendants must obey it forever. You see, there's some things we, we know and God's revealed to us, but there's some things God didn't tell us. And we're not going to worry about what he didn't tell us. But we have been given the law. One more time, let's talk about Cal and Datelich. David said, that which is revealed includes the law with its promises and threats. Consequently, that which is hidden can only refer to the mode in which God will carry out in the future his counsel and will, which he has revealed in his law and complete his work in salvation, notwithstanding the apostasy of the people. How? God's going to do whatever he decides to do. And when he's going to do that, he hasn't revealed. I do not think that the secret things refer to the sins as some have so said. Deer said this, one more quote. The secret things of the Lord probably refer to the future details that God has not revealed. Yet he has revealed that his future judgment for disobedience and future blessings for obedience, his requirements for holiness was enough to encourage the Israelites to follow all the words of the law. In other words, listening to Moses, if you were sitting in the audience, and he says, here's a covenant God has given you. God expects you to obey it. And if you depart from it, you're going to suffer punishment. And the question, well, what punishment? Well, you're going to the captive. Well, when will that take place? And how will that take place? What nation? All those secret things God hasn't revealed. But see, what he did reveal is his law. And that's what you're expected to obey. So notice whatever the secret things are, are in contrast to the revealed things. Let's start on this side. God has revealed his law. We're talking about as per Deuteronomy 29. God did reveal his law. God did reveal his commands. And God did reveal what the people were to be doing. Those were things God revealed. In contrast to the revealed things are secret things. Some specifics about God's punishment of a nation. Somehow about the future or how God's going to bring them into captivity. What nation they bring them with. How long they may be in captivity. God may not always reveal that. He did on some occasions, like in Jeremiah. But here's what I'm learning from Deuteronomy 29. Here's the point I want you to see, and the launching point. That it's important that we know that there are things we don't know. That's important. It's important to know there's some things I don't know. And I can't guess at what I don't know. The secret things belong to the Lord, but he has revealed some things to us. And I can be assured of what he's revealed, but I'm not sure about the secret things. Secretary of State Don Rumsfeld, whether you liked him or not, you had to be fascinated with this. This was probably the most quoted statement of all of his career. I was watching the news when he gave this at a news conference, and I was impressed and had to write it down and then go back and find the quotation. He was ridiculed for this statement, but I thought it was a good statement. He said, as we know, he's talking about the war in, on, in Afghanistan and other places that were raging at the time. As we know, there are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know that there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we don't know. But there are also unknown unknowns. They're the ones we don't know we don't know. Well... He was ridiculed for that, but that is true. There are things we know we know when it comes to the revelation of God. God's told me, and I know that. But there are also known unknowns. What do we mean by that? There are some things that I know I don't know. And it's important that we know what we don't know. So let's spend some time talking about things we don't know. There are some things we don't know. And I need to know that I don't know that. Let someone come along and say, they think they know that. I know they don't know that because it hasn't been revealed. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 29. If you were sitting in the audience and you said, well, now Moses just revealed to us 
the covenant of God. Do I know that? Yeah, I know that because it's just been revealed. But someone says, I know exactly what God's going to do in the punishment, the kind of punishment, how and when it's going to take place. No, that hadn't been revealed. You don't know that. You don't know that. What are some things we don't know? Here's the first. We don't know when the Lord will return. Now let's establish what we do know. What we do know is that the Lord will return. Let's look at a few passages that will help us to understand. Let's turn to John chapter 14. Jesus said in John 14 that you let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, you believe also in me. Look at verse 3. I go to prepare a place for you and I will come again and receive you to myself. Jesus said, I'm going away and I'm going to come back. He made the promise, so I know he's going to return. Let's turn to Acts chapter 1. When he ascended to heaven, an angel said to those that were standing gazing, this same Jesus that was taken up from you into heaven will also come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. So an angel promised he's coming back. I know he's coming back and I'm assured he's coming back. Notice one more passage along that line. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and in verse 19. 1 Thessalonians 2 and in verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Jesus said he's coming back. An angel said he's coming back. And Paul said he's coming back. I do know the Lord is returning. But let's talk about what we don't know. The Lord has not revealed when he will return. The Lord hadn't revealed that at all. Let's go to Matthew chapter 24. We don't know the time. We don't know the time. Now let's turn to, um, I want to look at both accounts, though they're parallel, because one adds a little thought. Let's go to Matthew chapter 24. The question was raised in early part of Matthew chapter 24. When will these things be? The destruction of Jerusalem, that is. And what is the sign of your coming? They thought that was the same thing, but they're actually two questions. So Jesus answers both. And look at Matthew 24, verse 36. But of that day, that is the day heaven and earth will pass away, verse 35, that's the coming of the Lord. But of that day and hour knows no one, no, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Concerning the time of his coming, Jesus said the Son doesn't, I mean, that, that the angels don't know it, you don't know it, only the Father knows that. No one knows when that's going to happen. Now, I said I want to mention Mark's account. You say, well, that's the same thing. It adds a thought. Look at Mark 13 and in verse 32. But of that day and hour knows no one, not the angels of heaven, nor the Son. That is, even the Lord himself doesn't know but the Father only. So we don't know the day or the time. I can't say it's this year. I can't say it's a thousand years. I don't know. We're not given a time. I do know this. It's going to be sudden and going to be a surprise. Both of these passages, 2 Peter 3 and 10 and 1 Thessalonians 5 and 2, says the Lord will come as a thief in the night. That's a sudden and a surprise. In other words, there's not warning that tomorrow he's coming. Or here's the signal, we have 24 hours to get ready. He's going to suddenly come as a thief in the night. Now back to Matthew chapter 24 in thought. I'm not going to read anything there. You might be turning to Luke 12 because I am going to read something there. Go to Luke chapter 12. <clears throat> But I learned from Matthew chapter 24, Mark 13, <clears throat> that there will be no signs that it's nearing. In other words, there's not going to be anything that indicates, you know what, there's a war going on and there's rumors of war and there's a famine and there's a pestilence. And there's an earthquake and those are signs it's coming. Those all had reference in Matthew 24 to the destruction of Jerusalem. And then they knew it was near. The contrast was given in verse 35 and 36. Let's go to Luke chapter 12. Look at verse 40, Luke 12 and in verse 40. He said, therefore you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now drop down to verse 46. And the master of the servant will come on that day when he is not looking for him. Now that was in the parable to illustrate the point of verse 40. That is, the Lord is going to return when men are not looking for him. In other words, there's not a sign that indicates, you know what, it's getting closer and it's getting even closer. And I think it's going to be within the next two or three days, the Lord is going to return. And now we're out looking for him because we know it's going to happen. No indication of a sign at all. So what does all that mean to us? 
Why do I need to be aware that I don't know concerning the second coming? I know he's coming, but I don't know when. Here's what that means. Any prediction or speculation is worthless. Now, when war breaks out in the Middle East, and there has been war for a number of years, but when a new skirmish breaks out, particularly involving Israel at all, the premillennialists run to the microphone and they begin to pronounce, this is a sign the Lord is coming soon. This is one of the signs of the end of the time. All such predictions, all such prophecy, all such speculation is worthless. But more important to us than that, let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. What does that mean to me since I don't know when? 2 Peter 3 says he'll come as a thief in the night. Now notice verse 11. Are you reading with me? Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons you ought to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of our God. That is, we should look forward to the second coming, but since we don't know what manner of persons ought you to be in all of your holy conduct. In other words, need to be ready at all times for the resurrection. We need to be ready at all times for the second coming of the Lord. That's what that means. Here's something else we don't know. We don't know when we will die. Now, there are some things we do know about death. We do know that if the Lord doesn't return first, we're going to die. So assuming, and that is an assumption, that the Lord's not going to come before I could live to be an old person, a real old person, then I know I'm going to die. How do I know? Well, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and in verse 2 says there's a time to be born and a time to die. So I can be assured that we're going to die unless the Lord comes first. Psalm 90 talks about the day of man, and I'm paraphrasing, is about 70 to 80 years, but if he goes beyond that, then he comes to death. And so Psalm 90, we quote that in many funerals, that death is going to come. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says, For as in Adam all die, just as sure as Adam died, so all mankind is going to die if the Lord doesn't come first. So we know that we're going to die, but here's what we don't know. We don't know the day of our death. Let's go back to Genesis 27. Notice at verse 2, Genesis 27. In Genesis 27 and verse 1, it came to pass that Isaac was an old man and his eyes were dim that he could not see, that he called Esau his son and he said to him, my son, he answered, here am I. Now verse 2, he said, behold now, I am old and I do not know the day of my death. What does it indicate? He knows it's coming. He knows it's closer. It may not be a long time, but he says, I don't know the day of my death. So I don't know the day of my death. Now, as we just saw in Genesis 27, as Isaac just said, we can know it's getting closer. The day of our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. I know that at age 20, I'm closer than I was at 10. And at 30, I'm closer than I was at 20. And you can go on and do the math. And so as we get older, we know we're getting closer to death. We know that much. It's possible that any one of us could experience a premature death. That could happen. And so we may think we're going to live for a long time, but we could experience a premature death. None of us have the assurance of another day. David said there is but a step between me and death. In other words, I'm a heartbeat away. Now, I might live longer, but I might live just for another heartbeat. I'm just, there's just a step between me and death. Death is on my doorstep at all times. I don't know when I'm going to die. So what value is there in knowing that? I need to know that. I need to know that there's some things I don't know. What does that mean to me? Well, that means is I don't know that I'll live as long as I'd like to live. And we're going to come at the end of our study back to James 4 and put it in its context. James 4 talks about those who say, to, we're, we're going to go into a city and we're going to continue there for a year and we'll buy and sell and get gain. Remember that? And we'll come back to what his answer was to that. But that had to do with an attitude that says, you know what? My plans for the future, I know I'm going to fulfill them. Because my plan is I'm going to go there and I'm going to live there for a year. You don't know that you're going to have a year. And here's the point. None of us are assured that we're going to live as long as we'd like to live. You say, well, I've got plans that next year I'm going to do this. And in five years I'm going to do this. Ten years from now I'm going to do. None of us have that assurance. So that means then that I need to be ready at all times 
I'm ready to die. That means you need to be ready today. You say, well, I'm young. You need to be ready to meet your Lord in judgment. And I need to understand and appreciate the value of the time that we have. Rather than everything's going to be better in the future, what about today? What about living your life now and appreciating the time you have? Because you might not have any more. Because there's some things you don't know. And one of the things you don't know is when you're going to die. Here's something else I don't know. I don't know specific acts of providence. I don't know specific acts of providence. Here's what I do know. And I know it because of Revelation. I know that God works in his providence. I know that. Let's establish what we do know. I know this. I know that God answers prayer. Let's take James 5 and verse 16. Here are passages we know and we know well. Let's look at two or three of these. James 5 said, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. In other words, it does good. Prayer does good. Prayer is effective. Prayer is powerful. I know that. You say, well, I, there's some questions I have. I do too. But I'm establishing what I know by revelation, and I know that God answers prayer. 1 Peter 3 and in verse 12, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. In other words, the Lord listens to the prayers of the righteous. The implication is he responds to the righteous. Otherwise, what, what assurance is there in that passage? By the way, that's a quotation from Psalm 34, which talks about those who fear God and the blessings they have. All right, here's another passage. Let's turn to 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. 1 John chapter 5, 14 and 15. This is the confidence <clears throat> that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So I have the assurance that God hears my prayer and he, he gives me the assurance he's listening. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have petitions that we have asked of him. What's his point? His point is we can be assured God hears the prayer and God will respond accordingly. Didn't say he'd respond as we ask, but he'd respond accordingly. So I can be assured God hears and God answers prayer. Now back to James 5. I know there's great power in prayer. Now we'll mention this a couple of times in our study, so let's go to James chapter 5 to make the point. And if we don't get it the first time, we may get it when we come back around. So James chapter 5, verse 16 said, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. If you are righteous and you pray, God answers prayer, and there's great power in prayer. You say, I don't get it. I'm not understanding how it all works. Okay, look at verse 17 and 18. Here is an illustration of the point. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He's no different than us. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain in the land for three years and six months. Elijah prayed concerning the weather and God heard and answered that prayer. Verse 18, and he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. So there were two different prayers that Elijah offered and God answered the prayer and that's assurance that God will listen and answer our prayers. Prayer has power. I can know that God works and is active in our lives today. I can be assured of that. That's what we call providence. Now, that's a biblical term used in Acts chapter 24. Let's define providence. Look at a secular source or two first, and then we'll come back and look at it in its context. Brother Haley perhaps captured the thought as well as anyone that providence refers to the working of God through his provision. There is providence, provision, in the natural and spiritual realms, and yet it is a control that violates neither the sovereignty of the human will nor the divine natural and spiritual laws. What's he saying? That God's providence is God answering your prayers, God working in the realms within the realm of natural law without violating natural law, in other words, without a miracle, and without violating human will. You may pray for someone to obey the gospel. God's not going to cause them to obey the gospel when they don't want to. So he's not going to violate human will. Providence is found in Acts 24 and verse 2, not talking about the providence of God, but of a political leader. Comes from a word which means forethought, Vine says. <clears throat> so this idea that in your forethought, the statement was made in Acts 24, through your providence, 
When we apply that term to God, it's talking about God using forethought in creating a universe that he could control and use for his purpose. So I pray to God, does God answer my prayer? God can and he does. That's providence. God created a universe that he could control to accomplish his purpose. So we see the word provide, God providing within the word providence. It's simply non-miraculous use of natural and law and circumstance to accomplish his purpose. Winston Atkinson said in Anchor Magazine, it is a divine intervention in the affairs of men within the confines of natural law. In other words, it's God working through natural means. Now let's illustrate. You've seen this before. There may be something that could be a miracle that is it's supernatural, but that same event could happen, maybe, and it's not supernatural. Let's see the difference. On the one side, you have providence. The other side, we have miracles. But notice we have on one side the birth of a child, the birth of a child. On the other side, we have weather change and a weather change. So what's the difference? Well, let's take the matter of the birth of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 21, that was a virgin birth. That's supernatural. That's not within the confines of natural law. So that was something supernatural. That was obviously miraculous. But on the other side, we have the birth of a child, Samuel. Hannah had a child named Samuel. She prayed to God, and Eli said her prayer was answered, 1 Samuel 1, 18. So is there any indication that was supernatural? That is, it was like a miraculous birth? She was born without a father, or maybe without a father or a mother, some kind of miraculous birth? No indication of that. Seems to be a natural, all indications. Nothing said about it being miraculous. God answered the prayer, though. So here we have something that's providence, and the other is a matter of miracle, but both involve the birth of a child. Over here in the matter of the weather change, Jesus calmed the storm. The storm is raging, and Jesus says, peace, be still, and it suddenly stops. That was a miracle that he performed. But Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain. He prayed that it would, and that's mentioned in the context of James 5, of we have power in our prayers, and the illustration is what Elijah was able to do. One on the one side is natural means, the other on the other side is supernatural means. So here's what I can be assured of, here's what I know. I know God hears and he answers prayer. Listen to this carefully. We do not have to know how God answers prayer, just the fact that he does. Sometimes people wonder, I don't understand how God does that. How is he going to answer that prayer? How, how will he accomplish that? I don't have to know how. The secret things belong to the Lord. Remember Deuteronomy 29? But what he has revealed is he answers my prayer. He listens to my prayer. And he answers that. I don't have to know how. If I did, he would have told me. We don't know or see when God is acting. Let me give you an example of that. Let's go to two passages that need to be laced in with this thought. Let's go back to the book of Esther. Do you remember that Esther came to the throne, and as the story is told, we see that as she came to the throne, that she became a tool to spare the Jews. And so we're seeing it through the eyes of the story being told in the book of Esther. But put your place, yourself in the place of Esther and Mordecai, who don't see the book as it's told, but at the point in chapter 4, here's what Mordecai says to Esther when she went to the throne and she's now become queen. He says, he says, for if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Now notice this phrase, you might underline for who knows whether you're come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Notice what he doesn't say. Mordecai doesn't say, I know God placed you on the throne to save the Jews. He didn't know that. He didn't know that. He had no way of knowing that. But what he said was, who knows, but God may have done that. He's showing confidence in the providence of God, but he's not saying, I know this was the case with God. Let me give you another case in point. Philemon... Let's go to the book of Philemon. Do you remember the book of Philemon is about a runaway slave, Onesimus. And Paul sends him back to Philemon 
And he says this at verse 15, for, here's a key word you might underline, perhaps. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose that you may receive him forever. It might be, Paul is saying, it might be that the departure that God allowed that to happen so that when he comes back you would receive him forever. Now why didn't, if that was a revelation from God, why didn't Paul say, I know for sure this is what God told me? Because God didn't tell him. He's saying, perhaps that's the case. Now, what does all that mean to me? What it means is I need to be careful stating what I know and, and how. What God's doing and how God is doing that in answer to my prayers. I don't always know what God's doing. I might have to use the words and the language of Philemon. Perhaps God is answering my prayer this way. I might say, who knows but what God is doing this. That's biblical language. I need to be careful stating what I think I know about what God is doing and how God is answering. And furthermore, something we may label as God acting. We might think about that a little bit because it may soon turn south. Or as one brother says, it turns sour on us. Here's something that's been done, and I say, this was God's working. God did this, and I know this was God's working, that he placed all of these things in order, and here it is, and then all of a sudden that turns sour on us. Are we ready now to label that as God's working? It might be. Because God hadn't revealed that to us. Here's something else. While we're talking about specific acts, here's something else I don't know. Specific acts of God ruling in the nations. Here's what I do know. Because we have revelation. We do know that God rules in the kingdoms of men. Let's go back to the book of Daniel. Here's something we do know. The book of Daniel, chapter 4. The statement is made all through the book, or the, the principle is stated all through the book, but repeated several times in chapter 4. Look at chapter 4, verse 17. Middle, start at the middle of the verse. The Most High rules in the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom every will. Look at verse 25. If you don't have underlined, you might underline. At the end of the verse, the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. Look at verse 32. Again, at the end of the verse, the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. God rules in the kingdoms of men. We can establish that. Let's look at Nehemiah chapter 8. We talk about Daniel 4. We don't talk as much about Nehemiah chapter, I said chapter 8. Let's go to Nehemiah chapter 9. God created a universe that he could control for his purpose. Look at Nehemiah chapter 9, beginning at verse 6. Nehemiah chapter 9 and in verse 6. It says, you alone are the Lord and you have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens and all the host, the earth and all that is in them, the sea and all that is in them. In other words, God created the world. Now, what does he do with that world? Look at the end of verse 6. And you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. God created a world. He preserves it. He controls it. Now, why does he control the universe? Why did he create a world that he could control? Look at verse 7. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of the earth of the Chaldeans and gave him a name to Abraham. In other words, that he might carry out his purpose. So here's what I learned from Nehemiah chapter 9. God created a universe, number one. Number two, he controls and preserves it. And the reason is that he might carry out his purpose. So I'm learning from that the same principle of Daniel 4. God rules in the kingdoms of men. The whole chapter of Revelation 4 is the picture of the throne scene. The point is God's still on his throne. He's in control in the midst of the utter chaos in Rome. Where it looks like they have the upper hand, God's on his throne and in control. Here's something else I know. I know that God can use nations as tools. How so? When Habakkuk raises the question, how long are you going to let this go on in Judah? The answer was, I'm raising up Babylon to punish Judah. And then the question was, how could you use this wicked nation, more wicked than Judah, to punish Judah? What God is doing is using Babylon as a tool to punish another nation that was even more righteous than they. Now, these are things I know. I know God rules. I know he controls the universe for his purpose. He's still on his throne. He uses nations as tools. But here's some things I don't know. We don't know the specifics of God ruling in the kingdoms of men. 
I don't know what God is doing in the nations. You say you do? How do you know that? You say, I know God's using this nation over here. You do? Did he reveal it to you? And if so, where? How'd you know that? We don't know the timing of his actions. You say, God's going to bring this nation down. Maybe so. When's he going to do it? Is it in my lifetime? My grandchildren's lifetime? How do you know? You don't know. I don't know that either. We don't know the reasons for his actions. I recognize God will bring a nation down because they're in sin. That's repeated all through the Old Testament and New Testament as well. But I don't know why God is as patient as he is with, for example, our own nation, as corrupt as it is. Why does he continue to let it go? I don't know. You say you do? How do you know that? Whatever you think you know. We don't know. Listen to this carefully. God can raise up leaders. God raised up Nebuchadnezzar, didn't he? He was a wicked man. God can raise up leaders in our own nation. Let's just focus on our own nation. It might be to better the nation, lead it in a better direction. Could God raise up a leader in our country to bring our country down? Drive it in the ground and destroy it? He could. God uses nations as tools. But we don't know about a specific leader. Now, this is an apolitical statement, so listen carefully. I'm, someone is easy to say, and you can pick, you pick your leader, the president. Let's just mention presidents. Someone says, this leader was raised up in the past, and I think God brought that leader to the forefront. That was God's doing because I think he's trying to save the nation. Maybe so, but I don't know that, and you don't either. Someone has said, but this man, he's, this old man over here that was in office, he was, or this woman that's in powerful office, she is so wicked, I think God let her come because he's trying to destroy the nation. Maybe so, but you don't know that. And I don't either. We don't know that. God can punish a nation economically. So when things are turning south economically and things are going down the tube, you say, well, God's doing this to us. Maybe so. You think you know God's doing it? Well, then tell me how you know that, because I'd like to know. I'd like to know that. I don't know. Maybe he is. God can use a drought or a disease. When, when the HIV thing, the AIDS thing, there was many pronouncing, that's God's punishment because of our toleration of homosexuality. Perhaps. I don't know that it was. You say you know? How you know? See, there's some things we don't know. I hear brethren saying, I think this virus, the coronavirus, is God's judgment on the world. Perhaps. How do you know that? Where's the revelation where you got that? Well, see, you don't know that, but perhaps we can use that language. Maybe it is, but I don't know that. I don't know that. I don't know what's going on. Because the secret things belong to the Lord. Here's what all that means to us. Here's what that means. What that means to me is this, that I need to be careful in my wording of, and, and what I have to say about the coronavirus, about AIDS, about this particular leader. God raised him up. Well, maybe he did. I don't know. I don't know. I need to be careful. Not knowing specific doesn't mean I don't know that God rules in the kingdoms of men. So you're saying you don't think God, oh yeah, I think God rules in the kingdoms of men. I think Daniel 4 applies today like it did in Daniel's day. I just don't know the specifics of what God's doing. You know why I don't know? Because God didn't reveal that. Here's something else we don't know. We don't know what God allows and why. See, what are you talking about? We do know that God allows trials and tests. I know that. Let's go to Matthew 6, 13, and I say to reference that, that's not really the point there, but here, I want you to see this. That God allowing trials is not the same as God causing them. What's, what's Matthew 6 talk about? Lead us not into temptation. That's the prayer. That implies that there is a possibility to be led into temptation. Now, God doesn't lead me into temptation. God doesn't call, but he allows me to be tempted. Here's the point I want you to see. God allows a number of things. And you say, how do you know God allows? Well, it's going on. He must allow it. 
God allows things that he doesn't cause. So I established that first. We do know that God allows temptation. Job was tested and tried. Let's talk about Job for a minute. Let's go to the book of Job chapter 1. Job was tested. And so as we open up the book, this is not the very beginning of the book and its own purpose because I want to come to the very beginning in a moment. But Job chapter 1, beginning about verse 6, there was Job losing his property and his children. As if that's not enough, chapter 2 shows he lost his health. As if that's not bad enough, his friends come, and after seven days of silence, they started talking and it got worse. Now, here's what we see, but Job never saw. Behind the scene was a discussion between God and Satan. When, when Satan is looking whom he may devour... It was God who said at verse 6 and said again at verse 8, Have you considered my servant Job? Or verse 8, he said that. And in chapter 2, verse 1, he said that. Have you considered my servant Job? Job never saw that. Job didn't see it. Job didn't know. We're talking about things we don't know. Job never saw it. There was something going on in the background Job never saw. Job does not see why God allows this. Only the reader knows that God is trying to prove to Satan that Job's faith is genuine. And on your first study of the book of Job, the first time you ever delve into it, you get excited, at least I did. I can't wait to get to the point where God explains to Job why all this was going on and it never happened. I was so disappointed. I thought Job was going to be told. And he was never told. Alfred Edersheim said, we cannot understand the meaning of many trials. God does not explain them. To explain them would destroy the object, which is that of calling for simple faith and implicit obedience. If we knew why the Lord sent us this or that trial, it would thereby cease to be either a trial of faith or of patience. I say amen. In other words, with every trial, if God said you know what, you, you just make it through and it's going to be okay right here and, and things are going to get better. And here's why you're going through that trial. If God took the time to explain every one of those trials to me, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be a test of my faith. Baxter said the fact is Job was not meant to know the explanation of his trial. And on this simple fact, everything hangs. If Job had known there would have been no place for faith, and the man would never have come forth as gold purified in fire. We're meant to understand that there are some things which God cannot reveal to us at the present inasmuch as the very revealing of them would thwart his purpose for our good. The scriptures are as wise in their reservation as in their revelation. Enough is revealed to make faith intelligent. Enough is reserved to give faith scope and development. In this, we repeat, lies the message of the book. There was an explanation, but that Job did not know it and was not meant to know it. You see, I don't always know what God's doing and why he's allowing something. Here's something else we don't know. I don't know the thoughts and the motives of others. I don't know the thoughts and the motives of others. Now, here's what I do know. I can know the actions that I see. I can see what you just did. I can hear the words you just said. The thoughts that are revealed, I can know. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 11. I know this is talking about inspiration in the context, but he illustrates inspiration, the revealing of the mind of God with the revealing of the mind of man. Here's his illustration. For who knows the things of man except the spirit of man who is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. In other words, you don't know what's in my mind. You can't read my mind until I reveal it to you. I can tell you what I'm thinking, but you don't know what I'm thinking. So what can I know? I can see the, I can know the actions. I can know the thoughts that you reveal to me. And I can know the motives that are told. In other words, you tell me your motive for doing so and so. I, I know why. I know the motive now. But let's talk about things that we don't know. What we don't know is what a person is thinking when they've not revealed that same passage. Now listen to that carefully because there's some application to make of that. I don't know what another person is thinking unless they reveal that to me. Here's something else I don't know. I don't know the motive behind the action. Turn to 1 Timothy 6 and verse 4. Paul talked about evil surmising. 
Look at 1 Timothy 6 and verse 4. It talks about he is proud, the one who teaches otherwise. He's proud knowing nothing. Obsessed with disputes and arguments over words. From which come envy, strife, reviling, and evil suspicions. BDAG says that word translated suspicions is an opinion or conjecture based on slight evidence. False suppositions or suspicions. Where I assume something that's no, there's no evidence. Now. We need to learn to give the benefit of the doubt. That's what 1 Corinthians 13, 7 said, believe all things. Give the benefit of the doubt to the person. Give the benefit of the doubt. <clears throat> so here's what that means in application. What that means is I need to be really careful in judging motives. Quite often someone does something and we want to package with that action the motive that we think goes with that. Someone walks right by me at, after services and doesn't speak to me. Now, what I do know is they didn't speak to me. What I don't know is the motive. They may have had something on their mind. They may have had an emergency. They may have a reason for that. But I could easily put a motive to that. You know what? They didn't like the sermon and they walked right by and didn't even speak. See what I just did? I have constructed a motive. I don't know. Closed a meeting one Friday night, and the, there was a gentleman there, a new convert, had been coming by every night, commenting on the lesson. And the last night, he had a mad look on his face. He busted past me, didn't even speak, and blew the doors open. And I looked at him thinking, wow, that guy's mad. I don't know what upset him. I was preaching on hell. I guess he didn't like it. The next day I learned he busted out of the doors to run and convert his brother who was on the road to hell because that sermon had engaged him to the point he wanted to convert somebody. So you can put a construction on something. Be careful of the motive. Do this. Distinguish what we know from what we don't know. I hear stories told, and sometimes maybe I've done this as well. We, 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 this is what so-and-so did, and here's the reason they did that. Whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's, let's parse things out. What do we know? We know they did it. We saw it. Do you know the motive? Well, no. No, you don't know the motive. Because they were thinking, do you know what they were thinking? No. Let's be careful. Impugning motives to someone. Don't assign a thought or a motive you don't know. If you don't know the motive, don't, don't assign that a motive. One last thing in the lesson is yours. Here's something else we don't know. We don't know the future. We don't know the future. And you say, well, I think we can know some things about it. Yeah, yeah, God has told me some things about the future. Here's some things I do know about the future. I know the Lord's going to return, 1 Corinthians 15, 23. So I know that much about the future. I know there's going to be a judgment in the future, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. I know that there's going to be the righteous and the wicked be separated in the judgment, Matthew chapter 25. And I know the righteous are going to live eternally in heaven, Romans 6, 23. And the wicked are going to burn forever in hell. I do know that much about the future. You say, how do you know? Because God revealed it. That's not secret. But we cannot know the future that has not been promised. We're not promised a future. On earth. Let's go to James chapter 4. I said we'd come back around, so here we are coming back around. Let's go to James chapter 4. We don't know that we'll be around for future plans. Every one of us, self included, have got plans for the future. You know, next year I'd like to be doing this, and six months from now I hope to be doing this, and two years from now what do I hope to be engaged in, and and five years from now, da, 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 and here we've got our plans for the future. Look at verse 13, James chapter 4. Come now you that say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such a city and spend a year and thereby and sell and make profit. Is there anything wrong with anything mentioned there? Not within itself. Is there anything wrong with making plans for the future? We all do that, don't we? And making a plan, we're going to spend a year there. Is there anything? No, nothing wrong with that. Is there anything wrong with buying and selling and getting gain? No. The problem was making the plans, not being cognizant of the fact there may not be a future. 
and cog not cognizant of the fact that God needs to be included in our plans. So let's go further. Look at verse 7, verse 14. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. In other words, you don't know the future. That's our point. For what is your life? It's a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills and we shall live, we'll do this or that. Here's what I'm learning. We don't know that we're going to be around for future plans. So here's what all this means to us. What does that mean? That we need to live godly at all moments of our lives, not knowing anything about a future. So you say, I don't know if I've got another day. I don't know if I have another year. I may not have another year to live, and you may not either. So I need to be living godly now instead of hoping that I'll be living godly five years from now. There may not be five years for me. But let's close with this thought. Look at verse 15. We need to learn to think, if not speak. This concept of the phrase, if the Lord wills. That was what he was saying in this context. Go back to verse 13. Verse 13 is the assurance that you're going to have a future. We're going, tomorrow we're going to go into the city and we're going to live there for a year. That's, that's my plan. I'm going to live there for a year and then I'm, and, and I'm going to buy and sell and get gained and I'm coming back and I'm, then maybe another year I'm going to do something else. That's acting as if you know there's going to be a future. Now look at verse 15. He said you ought to say, if the Lord wills and we shall live. What that does is that reminds me that there may not be a future. Lord willing, I plan to do this next year. If the Lord wills and I shall live, I'm going to buy and sell for the next year and get gain. Then maybe I'll retire. But I don't know that, so I'm going to say, if the Lord wills and I shall live. See, there's a lot of things we don't know. And we need to be aware of what we do. There are known knowns, but there are known unknowns. There's some things I know I don't know. Like what? I know I don't know when the Lord's going to return, and I know that I don't know when I'll die. I know that I don't know specific acts of providence. I know that I don't know specific acts of God's ruling in the nations. And I know that I don't know what God allows and why. I don't see all the background of that. I know that I don't know the thoughts and the motives of others, and I don't know the future, what it holds. And being cognizant of what I don't know can be just as important as being cognizant of what I do know. Now back to Deuteronomy 29, the text said, the secret things belong to the Lord. In other words, there's some things we just leave with the Lord, but God has revealed his will, and that's what we're to obey. It may be there's one or more present this morning who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. You say, there's a lot of things I don't know. No, you're right, you don't. But here's what you do know. You do know what the Lord has revealed that you must do in order to become a Christian. Would you do that even this very morning? Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and sing?